Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 40th episode of the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Thank you for listening, thank you for downloading, and a big thank you if you have subscribed and rated the podcast on iTunes and left a review. I'm not super savvy when it comes to how all of those algorithms and logistics work as far as ratings and reviews and downloads and all that and how that pushes the podcast in front of more people's eyes as they're searching for content, but I know that that stuff doesn't hurt. So thank you for those of you who have taken the time to do that, and I would encourage you, if you think I deserve a five-star rating, go ahead and click that the next time you are listening to the podcast. Um, I would appreciate it. And if you don't think I deserve it, then uh, feel free to let me know. Again, the format is kind of what I want to do. I don't want to replicate something that somebody else is doing, even though the fly fishing podcast world is relatively small. I really don't feel the need to uh, replicate what's being done because the folks that are doing interviews, the folks that are doing real nitty gritty technique talk, and especially those who are engaging in banter with one another, uh, there's folks that are doing that great. So I don't feel the need to reinvent the wheel. I listen to those podcasts. I enjoy those podcasts. This is meant to be a short form quick little snippet for you to listen to while you're doing something uh, throughout your day and hopefully uh, spur you to get more into not just fly fishing but more into thinking about how you fly fish. So as I've done with my 10th, 20th, and 30th episodes of the podcast, I want to interact with some uh, feedback I've received. And uh, so to start, I have an email from Jesse, and this is what Jesse says. He says, hi, I love listening to the podcast. I'm particularly interested in the podcast about trout fishing in Virginia. Since I live in Virginia Beach, I don't get too many opportunities to hit the mountain streams. I'm planning on taking several overnight backpacking trips to do some fishing, and I was wondering if you could help me out or any resources that could help out. In particular, are there any trips that you'd recommend? I hear a lot about the more you hike, the less people you'll see and the less pressure the fish get. This sounds ideal, but there is never a ton of info on remote places to hike and fish. I'm not looking for any secret spots, just a way to get started. Is it easy to park at a trailhead, hike along the stream until I don't see anyone, set up camp and fish? Do you have any strategies for finding remote locations? Thanks, Jesse. This is actually a really good question, especially if you fish saltwater or your fishing for trout experience has been driving up to a lake or to a river, parking, getting out and fishing. The idea of going into the woods to do this and actually hiking in is on one side of the coin daunting, on the other side probably just kind of confusing. It's just a whole different ball game, hiking to fish rather than just fishing. And so this is a totally legitimate question, and I think something that a lot of people are intimidated by. In fact, I know a lot of people are intimidated by. Uh, it seems like a difficult proposition if this is something you've never done before. 
So I think actually Jesse's on something. You find a trailhead that's by a stream, and you park, you hike until it gets remote, and then you fish. Honestly, that's worked a lot for me. That being said, there's been plenty of times where I've done that, and I have found a bunch of two and three inchers, which they have redeeming value, but I mean, that's not what you're going for. So especially in Virginia, and this data is available elsewhere, and I mentioned this in the podcast before, the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries maintains a series of trout maps that give you uh, the streams that are improved, the streams that have wild fisheries, the streams that are going to be really high probability fisheries. That being said, it's not complete. I know it's not complete because I've caught plenty of trout in Virginia on streams that don't appear on that map, but it's a great starting point. And even though that map is readily available and other states have similar resources that are readily available, it doesn't mean that those streams are going to be heavily pressured. But a lot of times it means doing some research, looking at a map, looking at a stream on public property that looks a lot like one of those other streams that is a uh, fishery that has been highlighted as a high catch factor fishery and giving it a try, giving it a whirl. I think also you have the idea of tributaries. So if you see a fishery that is maybe more popular maybe has been uh, selected as as being a, a wild trout fishery or even a uh, stock trout fishery, you can go up to a tributary of that that is a little further away and you're going to get into fish. And a lot of times, especially if you're in a place like Virginia, you're going to be going up to a tributary that's going to be where those wild and native brook trout are going to be finding refuge, especially if they've decided for whatever reason to stock brown trout and uh, rainbow trout on top of them. So that would be a little bit of, of my suggestion of, of how to find a spot. Now, as far as kind of what you do when you're there, that is totally up to you. If you want to camp in a traditional camping spot, go for it. If you want to uh, camp on the stream side in a hammock, knock yourself out. As long as you're complying with the regulations of the state or national park, then do whatever you're comfortable with, especially if fishing is the focus. Do what you want to do, but do it with your fishing in mind. So don't lug a bunch of gear that you're going to have to stash somewhere or carry on your back, you know, your 12-inch cast iron skillet. If you're going to be moving a lot, camping and fishing is very different than fishing and camping, if you get what I'm saying. So that's something else to consider as you're you're packing. This is a a topic that probably deserves its own podcast, deserves its own conversation, but just a a little bit of um, help as Jesse and other people are considering this type of fishing. And the other thing I would say is backpacking into fish your first time is maybe a little bit of a, a baptism by fire. There's a lot more to small mountain trout fishing in being successful than just casting a humpy into a plunge pool. It's not a whole lot more than that a lot of times, but sometimes it's good to get your feet wet, both literally and figuratively, before you uh, decide to uh, dive in head first. But you're always going to have fun if you're going to be in the woods and you're prepared and you're safe. So have at it. My second piece of feedback comes from John responding to my article, Throwback Gear Review, the Orvis T3. In this review, it's a review that's uh, nearly 20 years old. It's a fly rod I bought in just after 2000, the Orvis T3. Beautiful rod, still love it, still fish it all the time. It is my go-to traditional trout rod. I have an eight and a half foot five weight. 
in a mid-flex. It's beautiful for dry flies. It's fantastic for general purpose trout fishing. So I decided to review an old rod because there's no reason not to. I review gear that I get sent. I review new gear, and I thought, why not? take those same standards and apply it to a rod I've been fishing and I've become intimately familiar with for years and years and years. And so I got a lot of feedback from that. I think people enjoyed it. And I found a lot of people are fans of the Orvis T3. Uh, Orvis themselves reached out to me to actually say that they enjoy that rod. So this is from John. John says, it's amazing how the older graphites and glass rods still do the job. I too fish with some oldies but goodies and find that there has been no need to change. What is amazing is the money that the old glass and graphite rods now capture. My classic Fenwick glass rods from the 60s and 70s will fetch five times what they cost when I marketed them first. I will never, ever sell them. They just fish so well. Same with my old graphites. As one writer once wrote, rods change, the fishing has not. So I totally agree with John with his sentiment. I actually fished some of those 60s and 70s Fenwick glass rods that I wasn't around to see them the first time they were made, uh, but I have them. Uh, some of them are more of presentation pieces because I actually have a couple of them that still have the uh, warranty tag strapped to the hook keeper. So those I, I cast. I don't think I've fished those, but I have a couple other ones that I do fish. And there are differences. I'm not going to claim that a graphite rod built in 1970 is superior to a graphite rod built in 2019 because it's just not true but do quote-unquote antique rods still fish very well absolutely and especially if you like a well-balanced slow to medium action i think it's a lot easier to find a older rod either in graphite or in glass than it is to find a new rod of course, I've got a handful of rods that are brand new that cast in that slow to medium uh, action that I think are great. The problem is a lot of them cost $500 plus. You can get a lot of these older rods on the secondhand market for a couple hundred dollars, which, as John alluded to, is still five or six times their original value, but they're easy to get a hold of and they cast great. You're probably not going to get their 15 or 25 year warranty anymore, but they're going to fish really, really well. So I think a lot of folks are here. I think like so many other things that we kind of obsess about and gripe about in the fly fishing world, the idea that everyone is striving for the best and the newest and the most expensive is really just the vocal minority. It's, it's those sorts of voices that are pushing that agenda when in reality, a lot of people are totally content with what they have. A lot of folks don't have 6, 8, 10, 12 rods. They have their two or three trout rods that they fish, and they fish faithfully. And the only reason they buy a new rod is if they need something different or if they have broken an old rod. Be content with what you have. You know, Love what you fish with. Enjoy it. You get that casting stroke down. And if you can't cast it well or you pick up a new rod and it casts exponentially better, then that's a good reason to upgrade. But upgrading just for the sake of upgrading is probably not what you need to do. The new technology, it really, really tries to sell itself. But go and pick up one of these new rods, and you might say, you know what, that does cast really well, but is it worth $800? Is it worth putting another rod tube in my closet? Whether it's a rod you've had for 50 years or five years, you know, and you enjoy it, 
be content with it and celebrate it you know enjoy that rod treasure it i don't want to make more of this than needs to be said it's it's a fly rod it's a a little bit of carbon fiber or a little bit of fiberglass with some cork on the end or some bamboo or whatever. But enjoy that little piece of gear that connects you with the fish and facilitates and allows you to do what you enjoy when you're out fly fishing. Which brings us to Tenkara. Well, not really. We're not going to talk about Tenkara, but honestly, I think one of the great things Tenkara has done for fly fishing in general is made people reassess what they do, specifically what they carry. One of the tenets of Tenkara fishing uh, and just kind of that culture that's that small culture within the small culture of fly fishing is minimalism. And that's a great thing that we should all consider as we carry our vests that you know are basically exercise vests they weigh so much folks that really buy into a lot of the again tenants of tenkara have a lot of good things to offer when it comes to just kind of reassessing how people fish another thing just off the top of my head is uh, fishing one fly and learning to fish it well not because of the intrinsic value of that one fly but because a lot of fish are looking for presentation over pattern which is a saying that we all know and we all say but uh, tenkara anglers really go after that because it's one of the ways that that technique, not just the tenkara rod, but the tenkara technique has been uh, practiced for a long, long time. That being said, uh, Michael, who runs tenkaraangler.com, you might see him as Troutrageous on social media, uh, chimed in on my podcast, Throw Your Money at Waders and Boots. And this is what he said. He said, solid listen. Agree with your opinion on spending on footwear. I'm currently wearing a pair of Orvis ultralight wading boots with aftermarket studs added that I like for wading, either with waders or wet wading with neoprene booties. Super light, comfortable for hiking in, supportive for hopping rocks, all that stuff. In the future, I think I might invest a pair of Montbell, quote, shower climbing shoes. Google Japanese shower climbing if you're not sure what I'm talking about. Quick aside, I did, and I did it on that whole, like, secure google thing because i didn't know what creepy stuff would pop up when i googled japanese shower climbing and it's not creepy it's actually people climbing waterfalls and things like that which sounds incredibly dangerous but as you can probably see where this is going you need sticky footwear all right continuing on with michael's comment they seem perfect for maneuvering around the blue lines of the smokies with ankle support good grip but not too rigid where you'd lose tactile sensation on your soles think you'd appreciate them since you're already fond of your astrals well thank you michael for uh commenting and for making me google japanese shower climbing i think these look like awesome shoes honestly i love my astrals don't get me wrong and again my astral brewers are low top kayaking shoes that honestly i get tons of comments on their style i don't wear really i don't wear anything to get comments on style but these shoes people comment on all the time they're just they're casual they're comfortable and most importantly they perform when i'm wet waiting uh my only drawback with them is there isn't ankle support i have to be very deliberate how i walk and when i walk astral does make a shoe with ankle support as does Montbell, this company that Michael brought up, as well as a handful of other shoe manufacturers that make high top, for lack of a better term, shoes for hiking in water or for kayaking. Honestly, I can't say enough good things about my Astral Brewers. I love these shoes. They have made my wet wading so much easier, and as long as I'm not getting ankle or shin deep in mud, 
they shed debris effortlessly. But I think that, again, Michael's point is great. There's a lot of places that we can look outside of the fly fishing industry to find gear and find things that are going to help our fly fishing. This isn't a knock on the fly fishing industry at all. It's not a criticism of those companies that put out wet wading sandals and wet wading shoes, but they have to market kind of within a box. If you come out with something that looks completely different, like a kayaking shoe, you're going to get a lot of kickback. I think of two companies off the top of my head that are major players in the wading market, and their lightest shoe probably weighs five times as much as my Astrals do. Now, that being said, most fly fishers probably want more support in the shank and support in the ankle and maybe even a more rigid toe than I get out of my Astrals. But there's a lot of anglers, those who are just hopping into fish for a little bit, those who are a little bit faster, uh, folks who might be younger, folks who might be more agile and fit, who want something quicker and lighter. As I've mentioned before, these are the shoes I throw in my backpack when I trail run into a stream to kind of circle back to the very first part of the podcast. When I go trail running and I'm three, four, five miles back in, I don't want a couple pounds on my back. I want less than a pound on my back. And then I want those things to dry off immediately when I get back on the trail so I'm not lugging wet wading boots with felt uh, miles and miles as I'm jogging back to my car. So check out Astral, check out Montbell, check out any other company that makes kayaking shoes or hiking shoes for wet conditions, it's all about the sole, it's all about the construction, and then from there, the other things that you prioritize, toe support, uh, footbed, ankle support, things like that. Do some investigation, find something that might be outside of the fly fishing industry, but whether it be in wet wading shoes or in gloves or hats or base layers or storage solutions while you're on the water, you are going to be so surprised what you can find. I know a lot of guys that use camera storage equipment for their fly fishing gear because they like the customization options that people in the camera world have come up with and they are waterproof and they're ergonomic and they're made for outdoor use and it's nothing to do with fly fishing and it's maybe drab colors, it's black and gray tones, but a lot of folks use that stuff. Similarly, storage for getting your stuff to your car and storing your flies and your fly tying equipment, and you name it. There's so many great things out there that you can get at a really inexpensive rate uh, that doesn't have the logo of a fly fishing company on it, and you'll really get a lot of use out of. And of course, this is not knocking fly fishing companies. I would say that 90% of my fly fishing gear comes from fly fishing specific companies, and they do a great job. It's just neat sometimes to see how other markets and other industries push and pull the fly fishing industry to adapt to changing tastes because people will hop onto a trend or a tendency. So those are the three things I want to talk about this week. There's a lot more on my mind, but I'll save that for longer podcasts and posts on the website. Feel free to send me an email, matthew at castingacross.com. Use my contact form, castingacross.com backslash contact. Utilize Instagram at castingacross, Twitter at castingacross, Facebook. I don't even know how you get there. But however you want to get a hold of me, please get a hold of me. I'd love to hear uh, comments, questions, and as this podcast is titled, accusations. You don't say this. You didn't say this. You misrepresented that. I hate water shoes, whatever it may be. I'm happy to hear those things. 
This week on Casting and Cross, I had two articles as per usual. The first one that came out on Monday of this week was called Creative Ways to Fly Fish with Two Flies. This is the first time a podcast has inspired a post. That's hardly groundbreaking and you know isn't necessarily noteworthy, but I just think it shows that uh, what started as a podcast to supplement and augment the website has now become a much more symbiotic relationship. And a lot of the feedback I got on my podcast last week, which was Beyond Dry Dropper, Creative Two Fly Rigs, spurred me to spell out these things to an audience that might not use the podcast medium. And so I wrote a little bit about some of the different rigs that I use. I also talked a little about knots, which I failed to mention knots and storage solutions for your multiple fly rigs in the podcast so definitely check out that post and then on wednesday of this week i wrote so you tore your waders i talk about two products that are one of them is a fly fishing product one of them is not a fly fishing product that i think are great for repairing waders uh, especially on the stream and real quick um, nothing is going to be a substitute for getting home cleaning them up and repairing them well but there are some ways to repair your waders on the stream that are better than others. And so I actually talk about a few different options for how to do that and really how to prolong your quick fix for those small tears and uh, pinhole leaks. This week's recommendation is Spring Creek by Nick Lyons. This book was a book that I read on a summer when I was fishing a Spring Creek multiple times a week, four or five times a week. I was on the Spring Creek interacting with the people, places, and things that went into that fishing experience. So it was a really cool parallel experience for me. It is a story, but there's techniques and literature in its most classic sense within the fly fishing genre. So definitely check out Spring Creek by Nick Lyons. I'll put a link in the show notes for this podcast and uh, enjoy that read as you wrap up your summer. You'll really appreciate it no matter where you live, no matter if you fish Spring Creeks or not, because at the heart of it, it's about the relationship between a person and a stream. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.